Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're discussing the HBO series 30 Coins. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? It will soon be October, as on the release of this episode. Now, um, there is, of course, the October Horror Movie Challenge which, if you don't know, that's watching one horror movie every day all through October. Now, what kind of person would do this? <laughs> well, Scott would. And I did it last year. I think that's the only time I've ever actually done it all the way through October, a film every day. And I don't think I'm going to do it again. I'm just <laughs> going to say that. But Scott, you're committed. Sorry, you should be committed. Uh, you're you're going to do this. Yes, I am once more heading into the Halloween fray. And I am not only watching one horror film every day, but I am posting full reviews to BlasphemousTomes.com. I'll share links on social media as the films pop up on there. But I have a number of choice films picked out for this month. And these are Almost all, not entirely, but almost all ones that are available on streaming services. So if you want to play along at home, you can do. Though, you know, obviously I I don't necessarily recommend spending the entire month watching horror films, unless you really want to. So if you want to experience the October Horror Movie Challenge vicariously through Scott, then head on over to BlasphemousTomes.com. And speaking of Blasphemous Tomes... It's that time again. You know these roll around quick as soon as we finish one another one's due. Uh, submissions for the Blasphemous Tome, issue 10. We've made it to double digits. If you want to send submissions for the Blasphemous Tome, then we would welcome you to do so. If you have a piece of writing up to 500 words or a piece of artwork that you'd like to submit, then please send them to us at submissions at blasphemoustomes.com. So, Matt, I understand that you are writing a new scenario for this issue yes i'm delving into the uh silver linings i had of my uh, hospital stay a few months back using that experience to craft up a scenario that i hope will be enjoyable you've got to get some kind of positives out of that kind of experience so. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy well i'm looking forward to this matt i have to say after all the grueling things you've been through this year if you can get a good scenario out of it then that's some kind of silver lining Players do not have to suffer weeks on antibiotics, uh, get asthma, have intubation tubes ripped out of their throat, or you'll have all the wholesome plus sides of all this. <laughs> hmm. Good. I'm pretty sure when they operated on you, Matt, they cut in and found like Gamer was just written all the way through you <laughs> like a stick of rock. Uh, so you don't recommend playing this as a LARP? Yeah, don't, don't go down the whole kind of method acting or method role-playing stance. That is definitely not good for your health. And the next weekend with good friends, the online gaming convention organised by our wonderful listeners over on our Discord server, is approaching fast, and we have some key dates for you to bear in mind. These dates are coming around quick, so get ready, folks. 
GM signups begin on the 30th of September and go through to the 13th of October. Player signups happen shortly after that, starting the 21st of October through to the 27th of October. And then the lottery results are announced the day after, so the 28th of October, when you'll find out which games you're going to be lucky enough to get into. And then the convention itself, as I said, the 4th to the 6th of November. And that's all in 2022, just uh, for people <laughs> listening in the future. There are other weekends that will happen in the future, but not this one. It's worth bearing in mind that even if you can't get into any of the scheduled games for any reason, like you don't know if you're going to be available that weekend until the last minute, there will be plenty of opportunity to either run or play pickup games throughout the weekend. And for more information about the weekend with good friends, you can find that on blasphemoustomes.com. And now on to our main topic, 30 coins. So what is 30 coins and why are we talking about it on the good friends of Jackson Lies? Well, I used to be a coin collector. Did you now? How many yeah. did you get, Matt? I can't remember the number, but I had a lot. Was it 29? It might be 31. <laughs> oh. Uh, <you> know. <laughs> yeah. It's actually one thing I have been buying more recently online is Morgan Silver Dollars from the US between 1878 and 1879, because they're, they're originally released in 1878. So I'll use them as Benny tokens when I play Deadlands. Uh, <laughs> right, very good. But but why are we talking? These aren't the 30 coins we're talking about. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a Spanish language series that was made for HBO Europe in 2020, or at least released in 2020, directed by the Spanish film director, Alex de la Iglesia. So he's a prolific writer and director behind many great genre films, including Asion Mutante. Am I saying that right? The Day of the Beast, The Last Circus and The Bar. Yeah, he's been one of my favourites for a long time, ever since I saw Axion Mutante. Oh, gosh, back around 1990 or so. His stuff is... It's a lot of fun. I mean, he is, I guess, sort of a horror director, or at least a lot of his stuff is horror in its foundations but at the same time he brings in a lot of black comedy he brings in a lot of action and a lot of weirdness and he's a, a very difficult director to pin down in that respect and the closest i can think of in the anglosphere would possibly be someone like sam raimi certainly in terms of the energy of his films as well as being a filmmaker uh, he's also a long-time gamer and fan of call of cthulhu he has credited Call of Cthulhu as an influence on his work, especially in films like Day of the Beast. Is it an adaptation of the campaign, or is it just the title it shares? The film came out in 1995, and the campaign was renamed to Day of the Beast in 1998, so his film came first. But he has credited Call of Cthulhu as being an influence on his work, particularly on 30 Coins, as we'll get to, where he's particularly cited campaigns like Masks of Nyarlathotep and Tatters of the King as being direct influences on his approach. But also, he has actually written for Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, he's put out a scenario called La Broma Macabre, which in English translates as The Macabre Joke. He also wrote some fan material, I believe, back in the 1980s. He's written a few RPG things over the years. Well, I'll link to his RPG Geek page from the show notes. But he's primarily a filmmaker. He's only written, I think, like four or five RPG things. 
But this scenario you just mentioned, La Broma Macabre, it's a self-contained book that has been published by Edge Publishing in Spain. I don't know if there's a an English translation coming. I hope there is. But I've heard good things about it. Apparently it's written in such a way that it can be slotted into Masks of Nialathotep. And yeah, yeah, it sounds very cool. As if there wasn't enough to do in Masks already. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of psycho would write a whole additional chapter for Masks? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> 30 Coins was released in 2020. Seems so long ago now. First on HBO Europe and then on HBO in the US. It's an eight-part miniseries, although the ending is open enough to allow for a sequel. And boy, is it blatantly setting up a sequel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was expecting it to be more self-contained than it was, but that last episode... Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> After the first seven. <laughs> we actually recorded this episode a little while back, and since then, HBO have announced that there will indeed be a second series of 30 Coins. It will be coming out sometime in 2023, and apparently there'll be eight episodes. The other news is that they've expanded the cast a bit, adding Paul Giamatti. So let's give the listeners uh, an overview, if you don't know already, of what the show is about. So 30 Coins is a sort of horror-come-black-comedy-come-action-weird thing that revolves around conspiracies within the Catholic Church, particularly the Vatican, strange agendas going on there, the use of these strange artefacts, these relics, unholy relics, to pursue these agendas, and the way that the lives of ordinary people, or some less than ordinary people, are swept up in all this. The events of the series largely take place in a small town in northwestern Spain called Pedraza, and I'm almost certainly pronouncing that incorrectly, sorry. This is, I think, a medieval town, certainly an old historic town, filled with very old buildings and surrounded by a city wall. That wall becomes really quite important later on in the series. Thinking, as you mentioned about Tatters of the King, you've almost got that image of Carcosa right there with this walled ancient town or city on a hill very very evocative setting it really is well in not just that but it's also the sort of bleak landscape around it or at least the very arid looking landscape and so it just does feel like this sort of island of of habitation in the midst of a a rather less welcoming place so it starts i mean early on we get this scene of a cow giving birth now i've witnessed cows giving birth and <laughs> the thing that struck me as unusual before the the thing that is truly unusual happens is the vet is there like with her hand up you know the cow as as you do and um there's like nine spectators <laughs> why, why are they all there it's not just they're acting as spectators, but it's the fact that at some point during all this, she's interrupted because the door starts banging the wind. And none of the sods who are standing around go off yeah. and do anything about this. She gets up, stops all this veterinary work, and has to go out and deal with the sodding door herself, and just leaving the spectators to, well, look at the cow. <laughs> yeah, one with a phone out filming. Why are they filming it? I mean, if later we learned that these were like cultists and they were there to like, film the birth fair enough but i don't, don't think that was the case so like it was night they'd be at home you know they'd call the vet out the farmer would be there that'd be it 
Maybe because they're in the middle of nowhere, there's just nothing on TV that night, and this is the most <laughs> interesting thing happening in town. It's a local spectacle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also, we, we do find out pretty quickly that the meat business, I mean, this local abattoir as well, does seem to be the lifeblood of this community. So I guess it makes sense that if they're, I don't know, preparing stuff for social media, because we, I mean, we see that interview with <laughs> the mayor and his wife who are talking about the abattoir later on. I mean, maybe they're filming stuff for this. I don't know. What, they're I filming the birth of a cow for social, I don't know, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, crazier stuff has been put on social media. So yeah, maybe. Thinking of the mayor's wife, you've got a direct Cthulhu connection mm. right there because it's... Uh, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of the name. Uh, is it uh, Macarena Gomez or Macarena Gomez? Something like that. Plays the head priestess of Dagon in Stuart Gordon's 2001 film, Dagon. Yeah. That was her first film, yes. We're all looking thinking, I recognise her from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That and the actor playing the mayor, I was sitting there thinking, where do I know him from? And he was in Sensate. Oh. She has one of the best lines in horror film history for me with that retort to, fuck Dagon, yes, and their child will be immortal. <laughs> <laughs> so this cow gives birth to, uh, I mean, we've got to give some spoilers here. This happens pretty early in the episode, right? So it gives birth yeah. to a, a human baby. Yeah, she, she pulls the thing out. She gets distracted by this slamming door, comes back, and there's not a calf, there's a human baby. And she's like, what the fuck? And so as you would... She gives it to the farmer and his wife to, you know, to just look <laughs> after because that, that'll be fine. That's what you'd do. And there's a great scene when she goes back about halfway through the episode and she goes upstairs with them and she's like, is the baby all right? And the, there's the old, I mean, she's like middle-aged sort of older woman. She's like the farmer's wife and there's the farmer. And there's this great scene with the three of them in the bedroom doorway. And the, this is where the child is, the, ba the baby, who's like a few days old by now. <laughs> And the mother's like, oh, you know, he's growing well. And they're like, oh, good. He can walk now. And they're like, what the fuck? He can walk? And there's this great scene where it pans across and sort of, you can't really see it. It's obscured by like, I don't know, stuff in the bedroom, children's toys and stuff. But, but then this like massive baby about five foot tall comes sort of shuffling out. I got to say, I did not know watching this i'd heard about it from you scott and i thought it was like a gritty serious drama <laughs> and then i start watching i'm like is this supposed to be a comedy is it are all the villagers gonna say for the greater good <laughs> in a minute that's what i'm expecting and it's like i don't know whether to laugh or cry I mean, that is pretty common to de la Iglesia's films that they are this tonal <laughs> kind of melange of uh, absurdity and horror and comedy and just plain what-the-fuckness, mm. which is why I like his work so much. And then, of course, we get uh, John Wick, I mean, the, uh, the priest turning <laughs> up. Yeah. I think we'll make a number of references to how the protagonists here are Call of Cthulhu investigators, but he is, I don't think he's just a Call of Cthulhu investigator. I think he's a pulp Cthulhu character. He is an exorcist. He is a boxer. He has an armory hidden in the church. He has a dark past. This is the character who the power gamer in your group is playing. 
Yeah, but also it's like, oh, me and Matt, you know, or me, whoever's in the game, if it was me and Matt, we're playing like just regular people. And then this other yeah. player has got this character with a backstory that's like 10 pages long. He's <laughs> yeah. got freaking, oh, and I've got an armory and I've got, you know, occult powers. And me and Matt, we're just playing regular people. And it's like, well, what the f this is a different game. This, this investigator don't fit in. My haberdasher is not going to do anything now. This is a pulp character in a regular game. What pop talents do you have? I'm a pretty good vet. Yeah. <laughs> what pop talents do you have, Paco? Well, I take my shirt off every episode. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. If you've got a body yeah. like that, you know, you can take your shirt off and look pretty good. But he yeah. does do it pretty much every <laughs> he episode. He does. <laughs> it's the Captain Kirk talent. Yeah. It is. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. Not to mention the priest dousing his ammunition in holy water as well, just for added oh, yes. impact. I did like the priest's, like, um, the way he justifies everything, though. It's kind of heavy-handed, but that thing with the vet being distracted by the door, he's like, well, you know, that's when they did the change. That's when they that's when they swapped the baby on you, you know. And she's like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe they did. Maybe that was <laughs> what happened. And he kind of makes a point of justifying everything, doesn't he, of finding a rationale for everything. But you don't actually think that he believes it, but he kind of gets other people to believe it. This is the thing. I mean, you've got this character who's come into this town where nothing weird has really happened until his arrival, and he's brought all this weirdness with him. He's got a background that's steeped in weirdness, and yet from the outset he's trying to downplay it all and contain the situation. And that does lead to a really interesting dynamic. If you think about it in Call of Cthulhu terms, you don't have a very cohesive party here. Sure, Paco and Alina, they have a relationship that burgeons throughout the, the program, but at the same time, there are schisms, and yeah, it's a nicely played bit of development. But Father Vergara is there on the outside of the whole thing. He is sort of part of the, the group. You can see him as, as a member of the party, but at the same time, no one really trusts him, and really for good reason, because he is a shady motherfucker. Mm. You almost think of it in other game terms, he almost gives me a vibe a bit like a sleeper agent in Unknown Armies. Mm. That he's very much trying to rationalise and make sense of this for all the innocent bystanders. It's almost like, I've picked up points of Cthulhu Mythos skill so you don't have to. <laughs> I remember talking to you after the first episode, Matt, and I'd watched the first episode and I was like, I'm not sure about this, but it was kind of intrigued me. And then, so I just sort of said, have you watched it yet? And you were like, you loved it, Matt. So what, what was it that grabbed you about that first episode? I just loved the over-the-top what the fuck <laughs> that went on in there. They crammed so much in, because I was thinking it's a pilot episode, it's going to be an hour. No, it's like a full-length feature film kind of episode with a lot of pretty good special effects in there. And then just those loads of what-the-hell moments where you've got, yeah, baby comes out of the cow, yeah, that's fine. Baby grows out to be this monster, yeah. Okay, some spider weirdness. Okay, throw that into, I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and by the way, there's one of the coins that Judas got. Yay, just <laughs> kitchen sink, throw it in. <laughs> yes, kitchen sink is the phrase that I thought of. You've bypassed the opening scene. Now, the opening scene oh, of God. the, the programme is one of my favourite bits of the entire series. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> where you have... This man who walks into this bank in Geneva, he's a middle-aged man, 
looks fairly normal, and then just starts pulling out a gun and shooting all the guards and shooting everyone, and then breaks into the safety deposit box and uh, or the room with the safety deposit boxes and gets one of the boxes and pulls this coin out of it and goes outside, and people are shooting him the whole time. He's riddled with bullets, and he doesn't seem to slow down, and just gets into a car. There's a priest in sunglasses inside who reaches around takes this medallion with another one of these coins off his neck and his body just slumps. It's like Jason Bourne with zombies. <laughs> is it zombies or is it that he's been possessed by something through the coin? I mean, it's never explained, but by God, I mean, as far as an attention-getting opening scene goes, that one is hard to beat. Hmm. I took it as that the, because it was that medallion thing he wears round or mm. locket thing that he wears round his neck, that when that's taken off, that then whatever's doing the possession drops, that mm. maybe yeah. it's a bit like some kind of demonic or spirit thing that's inside that, because it, that, that uh, kind of mechanism pops up later in the yeah. series. And again, the same thing, when that necklace is taken off the body, bang, possession finishes and it's just a lump of meat and it drops to the ground. That's a great thing you can port into a role-playing game. I mean, that that is oh, an God, artifact yeah. in Call of Cthulhu. Awesome. You know, you've got a character, you put the thing on, they do as you command, and they won't stop, even if they're shot, even if, you know, shot to pieces, they'll just carry on like a robot. Yeah, and do the task. And as soon as you take that thing off, job's done. Yeah. But one of the things I liked about it from a storytelling point of view is that it's not over-explained. They don't have a scene where they sort of say, oh, yeah, well, when we do this with the necklace, this is what happens, or, you know, mm. it's turning him into a zombie, it's getting him possessed by a demon or whatever. It's just, you're thrown in at this weird shit happening. They, the priest takes the necklace off at the end. You can obviously see that's what's causing it. And that's all the explanation you need for economy of weird storytelling i think that's something again we can learn quite a lot from you don't need to explain these things the audience or the players will be able to infer everything they need from that without you, know, you sitting down and explaining the mechanics of the whole thing to them something they do a couple of times throughout the series is these little isolated scenes where another coin is picked up by this group and you have combinations again of just brutality like the the one in new york where he goes into a jewelry store later oh yeah and also the weirdness and again a kind of what the hell moment of going down a subway uh, line and then finding this a huge underground cathedral with an upturned massive effigy of christ with one of yeah. the coins in its eye again, they make wonderful just scenes to watch, just uh, the actual just scenes they present are great imagery. I felt a little bit like, you know, watching that first opening scene, like it was a bit like a scene from The Matrix or something. It was really like, you know, dramatic and loads of action and, and really intriguing. And then we went to the Spanish village and I was like, yeah, but that's going to come back to the opening scene at some point. And then you don't. And it's like a whole like feature length episode. So I was a little bit like, oh, I kind of wanted to see a bit more of that. And we do later, but it's quite a while before we kind of get back to that stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think it was, wasn't until really episode four that I felt like I, I was kind of getting hooked by it and like oh, really yeah. oh actually now this is getting really good it was when Viraga goes back to Rome for me it was episode three that was the probably my favorite of, of all of them not not to be harsh on it but I think you could easily skip over episode two in its entirety because that thing was just a load of filler mm. and that was the one with the missing girl and the Ouija board was it yeah, yeah that one 
Yeah, I mean, that was the, the most sort of straightforward horror movie one out there. Yeah, episode two, maybe not so strong. But yeah, the stuff in episode three with the mirror and so on. That was cool. Oh, yes. This is maybe a criticism for maybe some of the stuff, how it was developed. That episode two as well is the one that is also the most inconsistent with some of the actions of some of the characters. I can't remember his name, but it's the kind of the homeless guy who throws himself off the church oh, tower yeah. in episode one. He's kind of set up to begin with as, oh, I'm going to be this crazy kind of uh, Renfield type character that I'm going to be the supporting person on the ground for all these enemy forces. And you see him at the end of episode two communing with these shadows on the wall saying, I'm going to wait for the right time. Yet none of that shit comes up again. He's just the crazy guy that then effectively turns into a good guy. It's like, what the hell? Did you just suddenly rewrite his motivations between episodes and not tell anyone? With episode three, we get this thing with the mirror and the priest, and there's a lot of sort of crazy yeah. stuff. And nobody's, we're not really sure what's going on yet. And then we get a tip off, don't we? I think about this mirror in this room in the town, and the two main characters, Paco and Elena, go there. And, and looking in the mirror, they can see the reflection of the room they're in, just the mm. same, perfectly fine. And then they clock that, oh, wait a minute, there's a book on the table in the reflection. And they look around, it's not on the table behind them in reality. And this opens up this whole like mirror world thing, which kind of takes the story onward, I think, in, in a great direction. And that really kind of links everything up. And it allows a geographical leap as well, because Baraga, yeah. the, the priest, his connection with Italy, it allows that sort of uh, connection to actually sort of manifest. But also this way of eavesdropping or spying on people where you can pass through mirrors and walk in this world behind all the mirrors and then look out through another mirror and see what they're doing. That's really quite creepy. Mm. I love that. I mean, my, my first published scenario involves things in mirrors. Mm. I've always had that as a, a motif I've really loved. And oh, I couldn't get enough of that episode. I thought that was so, so good. Yeah, yeah, that was good. And you, I mean, there are things in this series that as you're watching it, you, <laughs> some of the things are surprises, but there's quite a few things you can predict, but they're still kind of fun. You know that the priest is going to fall asleep in front of the mirror and his reflection <laughs> is going to wake up, right? You know, you yeah. just know that is going to happen, but it's yeah. still fun when it does. And that he was stupid enough to go close enough to the mirror and get pulled in. Yeah. And that his reflection comes out and starts doing dodgy yeah. shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh. But which one's the real one? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, that really plays into a lot of my old childhood fears. I remember, I don't know why particularly, there must have been something I saw on TV or a story I read at some stage, but I just used to get really creeped out by the idea of mirrors just not reflecting what they're supposed to, either sort of seeing things in the background that are coming up behind you, or, or just the fact that the reflection is wrong. And there's something, I think, primarily upsetting about that idea. Mm. And the subtle way that it's done at first with, yes, there is this book here. You can see it. You can put your hand on it. You can sort of interact with it through the mirror. It just felt, yeah, wrong. That was one thing I really wish they'd done a bit more with as well, the Gospel of Judas that was on mm. the table. And that wonderful scene where she kind of picks it up, that she can feel this invisible thing, picks it up, throws it at the mirror, and of course the mirror crashes and then the book comes through it as if it would be that yes. it had been thrown from the other side. I was kind of hoping they'd do more with the book. Yeah, this series sets things up. I mean, we get the Gospel of Judas, which is cool, but, you know, there is, right, a Gnostic Gospel of Judas? There is, Yeah. I mean, that's cool. But later on, we get a Gnostic gospel by Jesus, which I don't think is a thing, right? 
And that's like, oh, wow, that is a, a cool idea. I don't know if it's a, a, a unique idea to this show or not, but that's a cool idea. And we get the evil priest sort of says, you know, if you read that, it's going to blow your mind. Mm. But we never really dig into that. So it sets a lot of things up, which are like, oh, it's really exciting. But then we don't really... We kind of see some exciting book covers, but we never actually open them up and read them, in <laughs> effect. But you've also touched upon one of the other things I like about this series, which is that it does use a lot of stuff out of Gnosticism and a lot of Christian heresies. We talked a little bit about how Alex de la Iglesia was influenced by Call of Cthulhu and Certainly, you know, in terms of the structure and the general feel of it, you can certainly see Call of Cthulhu there. And there's, you know, there are Easter eggs all the way through as well, which sort of a hint at that. But at the same time, fuck me, is this great inspiration for cult. I mean, this really does feel like a cult campaign. Yeah, the whole Gnostic angle when you bring in the Demiurge and the Archons in particular, that just screams cult. Yeah, but also the fact that the antagonist, you mentioned the evil priest, well, Cardinal, this antagonistic character. Yeah, he is leading this sect, the Cainites, who were a real sect. I mean, they haven't been around for a couple of thousand years, but they were a real Gnostic sect who believed that Cain was the first victim of the Demiurge. That is just not pure cult. Mm. I wasn't familiar too much with the group beforehand, but reading up on them, you can certainly see how aspects of the Qumran church in cult mm. were very much influenced by this group, that they were got a splinter away from the traditional Christian mainstream and that they focused in on the, say, the lost gospels. They're heavily tied in with the likes of the Dead Sea Scrolls and so on. Yeah. Hence Qumran being where they're found and so on. They are this church movement that have their own goal, not fitting with what the group in 30 Coins want, but definitely there's, there's thematic similarities here, definitely. I guess that was maybe one of the more disappointing aspects of 30 Coins, which is that for all that use of Gnosticism and the weirdness there and so on, that the goal of the the antagonists of the Canaanites did seem to be fairly mundane, that it just felt like a power grab. Quite literally, when you look at some of the scenes in the very last episode. <laughs> yeah. But as we mentioned, the whole thing is set up for a sequel, and so maybe we will see more of that explored in the subsequent series if one ever gets commissioned. Given the way they set it up, I'm surprised there isn't one, because it almost seemed like, yeah, we're definitely going to continue this on. But I can see how it'd be an, an angle to try and convince producers to say, hey, we've got a lot of material here we can still do. Well, I guess a lot of it depends on how successful it was, because, I mean, this was obviously made for a Spanish-speaking audience at first, but it was shown then in the US. I don't know how successful it's been there. I've certainly heard a lot of horror fans and Call of Cthulhu fans talking about it, but in terms of the mainstream success, compared to a lot of the other HBO shows that get huge amounts of press, this one, I think, went very much under the radar. Maybe the language issue, potentially, but don't know. Yeah, when it comes to the language issue, you do have to be able to read pretty quick to keep up with the subtitles. Spanish people speak very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, they could have condensed the dialogue, I felt, sometimes. But Thinking of what Scott mentioned about Easter eggs, though, there's one that I remember 
pointing out to Paul when I watched it. I think it's episode four, as you were mentioning about when it really came alive for you, was when you went back to kind of Italy and the Vatican. Mm. There's a, a long series of flashbacks in that episode that go back to when he was learning exorcism and such. Mm. And it's set in this lovely auditorium where they're all crammed in with this so-called possessed person down in the uh, kind of the auditorium floor. And you get this wonderful long shot of going down this blackboard that's covered in symbols. Yellow sign! And then, <laughs> and then nah, it doesn't come up again. But bizarrely, <laughs> if I recall correctly, there's the words yellow sign in English yeah. written next to it, which is kind of odd. Yeah. Well, it does come up again, actually, Matt. It does come up does once it? more, the yellow sign, yeah. In a future episode, when the, the old farmer shoots himself, behind the uh, police officers and so on that turn up, there's like a post in the ground, like a low post, and it's got the yellow sign painted on it. Oh, I didn't notice that one. Oh. Yeah. Mm. But again, it's like... <sighs> yeah, it's an Easter egg, yeah. Is that what you'd call it? I don't know. He's thrown these things yeah. in, and I don't know what, how that adds anything. In the initial scene with the exorcists being taught, this was on a board full of occult symbols. It was sort of, hmm. you know, here are things to watch out for. And so within that context, it was sort of, yeah, as an exorcist, as someone who was fighting against the forces of darkness, this is something you may well come across. I love that episode later in that episode where you have this wonderful moment of going along to a almost like a lockup down by the docks where you've got this guy chained up on a bed. Oh, yes. That was perfect casting for that character because, boy, is that man freaky as hell. <laughs> that is very much a sort of Nyarlathotep-like character, isn't it? Oh, hell yeah. Well, even skipping ahead to, I think it's actually the beginning of the last episode, where he says, oh, you want to see my true form, do you? Up comes the bloody tongue. It's <laughs> just straight out of the ground. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm like, is that, what? That's Nalathotep. Like, literally out of Master Nalathotep when he manifests as, as the bloody tongue. Like, I don't know, 100 foot tall with the, the tentacle yeah. on the head. And and what happens there? It's like the priest, he's, you know, he's, he's John Wicked up now. He's got like, I don't know, <laughs> oozes in each hand or something. And he's, he's like firing away at it. And... He kind of gets lifted up and then he shoots. Is it a version of himself embedded mm. in Nalathotep's skin or something? Yeah, it's like made up of kind of the damned corpses from hell along his torso. But I thought maybe it was like the evil version of himself, like the mirror version. Who knows? <laughs> it was, again, another kind of action-packed what-the-fuck moment. <laughs> and then he disappears <laughs> and doesn't come back again. It's like, no, I could tear the town apart looking for you. I could lay waste to this place in about half an hour. But now nah, we're going to have you hidden away in some tunnels for days and I can't be bothered to manifest again. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> but I'd like to cut back to episode five when um, Viraga the priest, he's been taken captive by the, basically, nobody expects a Spanish Inquisition, <laughs> is what it should have been subtitled. <laughs> he's being held in this cell and they're like interrogating him and trying to sort of crack him you know, to find out where this missing coin is and stuff like that. And then I think it's episode five. It sort of starts with Raga, well, as a young child. And he's having sort of memories of himself out in Spain or wherever it is in a, in a little village. And he's at the school there and he's he's sat in like this, this concrete sort of tunnel in the playground talking to one of his little buddies. And they've got some like little collectible cards or something. And, yes. they're, and they're swapping these like bubblegum cards type thing. And he's chatting with his friend and it goes on for a minute or two. And then his sort of friend says, you know, where's the coin? And, and he's like, what, 
Uh, how are you asking me about the coin? Wait a minute, where am I? Mm. And I hadn't clocked that this wasn't just a flashback. Yeah. And then the camera pans back to his little, like, nine-year-old friend. It's the evil cardinal in his white suit as an adult. And, really, oh, the penny dropped then. So that, I really enjoyed that that <laughs> scene. That totally took me unawares because yeah. I thought we were just learning a bit about his background. But no, this was part of the interrogation. Well, and also the cars that they're trading, these monster cards, one of the cars he's got is Cthulhu. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. I spotted the Burning Man being a reference to his friend in the previous episode that got set on fire by uh, Arnie Arfletep figure. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't catch Cthulhu. Ah. Yeah, this thing is lousy with Easter eggs. Thinking of the Burning Guy, that's one thing I didn't mention. In the episode previous, I love that image. It's almost Prince of Darkness-like, where you want to meet my boss, yeah? He's, he's just next door. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Walk through the door, and of course, open up, bright light yeah. goes shining in his face. Steps inside, Friday goes after him empty locker yeah oh that was wonderful wonderful imagery very much reminded me of prince of darkness in a way now there's a film we should talk about on the podcast one day yeah actually i'm surprised we haven't one of my favorite parts in the whole thing was the way that the town is used as a battleground for the various factions involved that the canites come in or rather they use a local witch to basically cast this spell over the town, filling it up with supernatural fog and seals the town off from the rest of the world, just places this invisible barrier that's just such a creepy setup, mm. and then just uses this as a way of, of starting to turn everyone against each other and fuck with their heads. Well, she starts off a little bit more low-key to begin with. Mm. I think the an episode or two before that, you have this crazy woman which sat out in a field and then turns a scarecrow into one of the uh, characters that's been kind of mentioned a few times beforehand as the vet's missing husband, yeah. bringing this scarecrow to life in his image. And you've got this thing walking through the town before it finally gets into a shower and starts moving all the mud and the dirt off it. Remind me a little bit, again, this imagery from uh, a film a few years ago, Wakewood. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. Where they can bring the dead back for a short period, but then that's it. Well, you, you had your time to say goodbye, and then it's, you have to move on. It's very much that same kind of thing from the earth that had been called up that then eventually has the semblance of man about it. But yeah, she, she is definitely a creepy mid-level boss in a Cthulhu game. Yeah. So very, very much the take the witch out eventually. And I kind of like the fact that, you know, that, that character that had come back from the dead, he was like walking through the town, I think naked, but he got all this grey shit all over him. Like he looked like a zombie. And then he gets in the shower and it's literally like the actor has got all this makeup on and he stood in the shower and just washes it off. Yeah. Which is kind of what happened. It was kind of a yeah. bit of a meta moment. Yeah. But also it's like, so this character has been brought back from the dead to subtly get the coin from Elena, his wife, the vet. And he plays it like subtle for like about three quarters of an hour <laughs> and they're going away. The two of them are going away. So she's probably got the coin. You know, he's going to be able to search her stuff. But then he's like, so where's the coin? Well, <laughs> why you suddenly do that? Because why go to all that subtlety and then just, where's the coin? I don't know. It's just like, yeah, okay. They're alone now. There's no weaknesses. Fuck it. Off come the gloves. I guess. That does set up something that I've wanted to see in um, a lot of games, uh, a lot of scenarios at times. I know that Scott hates is the uh, the we call the police aspect. <laughs> that finally, after that, ironically, the straw 
for the uh, Scarecrow, the straw that broke the authorities' back is that, yeah, we've witnessed all these weird shit reports coming out of here like 25 times the national level, so we're sending two agents from higher up to go and find (laughs) out what the fuck is going on. And suddenly you have this authoritarian oversight turn up, like the FBI, in if it was in America, turning up to find out what the hell is going on in your small town. It was a bit X-Files. Hmm. Yeah, I couldn't really figure those two out. It was like, are these actually like special agents or are they some kind of like occultists as well? What what are these people? Because they didn't seem to do a great job of anything. Not that they would have to, right? But yeah, they just seemed a a weird pair. A collateral damage and cannon fodder for later in the the last episode. (laughs) They should definitely have had Mulder and Scully instead. (laughs) But Paul, that's the bit you see is weird in this whole series well uh, every aspect of everything in this is weird it is yeah yeah no you're right you're right it's like picking upon one aspect of twin peaks and saying well that was a bit odd Mm. yeah why did she lose her memory and have that obsession with drapes (laughs) but yeah that whole bit where the town was trapped by the invisible force field and filled up with fog as i said i found really quite creepy in the way that that invisible barrier is used with uh, the car crash into it and stuff <laughs> is i thought that's something that you could have a lot of fun stealing for a game yeah because as we've talked about before isolation helps so much with horror and you do now have this town that is completely cut off from the outside world the fog is reducing visibility you have people well, you have this Neolithotep figure in there who's taken over the church and is now turning people against each other. It is just such a, a fucked up situation that it's just like all the elements coming together for pure nastiness. I, I love that. It's definitely one thing I can see helping with certain scenarios, having a kind of MacGuffin effect like that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, well, I know you've been in uh, running games where this has happened, where you have certain players who essentially go, nope, don't want to interact with this shit. No, I'm off. Escape. Get on the first train out of here. Leave. Yeah. And suddenly, hey, you get to the, the edge of town. Donk. Oh, you're not going anywhere, <laughs> are you? <laughs> it occurs to me that I have written a scenario in which exactly that thing happens that you it's not just that you're in a place that's cut off from the rest of the outside world but it's also filled with fog but i will say that i wrote that a few years before this came out <laughs> thinking about it we haven't actually mentioned what the 30 coins are and what their god this group's intended goal with them is have we even despite the fact it's the title of the bloody show <laughs> one of the favorite bits of me as well is the opening credits because it's they're wonderfully evocative even down to the music oh, yeah. you know the creepy atmosphere that's evoked here the coins are the 30 silver pieces that were given to Judas for the betrayal of Christ and kind of handing him over to the Roman authorities. And they tie it in with this, again, Cainite belief that religion has relics, or at least Christianity has relics, items that are imbued with the power of God, or in this case, as the Cainite philosophy in the show is depicted as that it's they are relics but are almost like an inverted or mirrored in inverted commas nature that rather than being a force of god it's almost like they're a force of anti-god yeah that they are very much an evil relic rather than a relic of good that's an interesting point because one of the things that I liked about this was that these things aren't presented as satanic. Though you do have these demonic entities that crop up from time to time, the whole idea of these sort of anti-relics 
they work as much in a Gnostic sense as they do in a traditional sort of Satan versus God religious story that you'd expect from, say, something like The Exorcist or The Omen. Mm -hmm. the, this is something weirder and older. You have potentially this sect, though it's never explained if they are canites, who are much more about perhaps standing up against the demiurge and the illusory nature of reality than about the classic, hey, we're Satanists, we're evil, stab, stab, stab. I don't think even the word Satan is brought up no. much, if any, if any, in the show. They present good and evil as just being different sides, to use a metaphor, of the same coin, that if God yeah. is good, God also has to be evil to maintain balance. And it's just they're saying that the Cainite role in God's plan is that they have to be the ones that provide evil so that good can be recognised as the one true way of God. Yeah. So that they're fulfilling part of the divine plan, at least as they see it, and that these relics can be used to gather power. And they list a couple of instances about things like Napoleon having so many of them, and that's why he marched mm. on Russia to get them, that uh, Hitler had so many of them as well. And you think, well, yeah, look what happened with people that got a handful of them. And Christ, these guys have got 29 of them by the, towards the end of the show. They should have invested those uh, coins in warm coats. That's what they should have done. <laughs> <laughs> they're in, both made in Russia. So what is their goal? Once they get the 30 coins, what's their goal? They want to rewrite the existing power structure, is how I saw it, because it's mm. about this yeah. evil cardinal wanting to become the new pope and to instill their orthodox or their religious beliefs on replacing where Christianity holds at the moment. So destroying the Christian church and replacing it with their own as the world's dominant religion. Because they do a pretty shit job of it at the end. Once they get the 30 <laughs> coins, he just sticks them in his magic hat. Well, it's not even a magic hat. It's just a hat. He sticks mm -hmm. the coins in it. It doesn't really achieve anything, as far as I could see. Particularly that ending with, uh, as you're afraid of, with, with that hat, does remind me very much of a scene that me and you played out when we were doing Horror on <laughs> the Orient Express. It was uh, Defenestrate. It was just ram into oh. the guy and throw him <laughs> off the balcony. Yeah. Instead, rather than throwing the bad guy off a train, it was, no, push him out of a window, done. <laughs> I particularly liked it when the coins are strewn across the floor and there's this kind of fervour of like frenzy of mm. trying to grab up the coins and everybody's kind of overcome with greed almost and, and then it just, it's like scattered to the four winds. That was cool, but I thought didn't really make much of actually getting the coins together, I felt. I thought it was a nice, actually, callback to remember that opening credits scene I remember that, uh, that I said I quite liked. That's exactly what happened when Judas dropped the bag below his yeah. hanging corpse, that it's just history repeating itself, mm. and that you've got this mad power grab and everyone grabbing a coin or two and then running away. Oh, yeah, that's the bit I liked. It's the fact that when he'd actually got all the coins, nothing seemed to happen. The whole scheming and turning against each other and power grabs and so on in the end, one thing that it did really well was the fact that you've got these people who've been brought together by the lust of power, by these venal desires, who are working together towards what appears a common end, but fundamentally it is just a bag of rats and they're happy to tear each other apart. And they are the agents of their own undoing as much as anything that the heroes are doing. It does also prove a trope that I've noticed over quite a few things these days. The bad guys always get the best costumes. Yeah, 
I love the whole inversion of rather than having a black suit and a white dog yes. collar, it's the other way around. They have these wonderful white suits and black dog collar or black shirts. And thinking, yeah, I've, I've used that costume so much in LARPs that I've lost count. So it's, <laughs> it's nice to see that again. <laughs> it's a great look, but it's going to show every mark. You know, you're going to have to wash <laughs> it so often. You're not going to be able to drink red wine or anything like that for fear of dripping it down it any sacrifices one spot of blood on you it's going to show you got to send that to the dry cleaners yeah life would be a nightmare matt <laughs> they didn't think that through i'm sure but one thing the antagonists do really well is research as you mentioned earlier they've got that fantastic bit where they're looking at the gospel of jesus but this whole reading room that's filled with all these ancient tomes and these researchers putting together these lost secrets and that that is like uh, yeah, every call of cthulhu search for forbidden knowledge mm. trope there coming together perfectly I and mean, it is just such a fantastic scene i was amazed that we didn't see the necronomicon on the shelf yeah i know i was waiting for that yeah <laughs> he restrained himself for a moment <laughs> from putting that in there it occurs to me where are they going to go with this because at the end we see a dagon lady and uh you know one of these white robed priest guys they've got a coin and they're driving off into the sunset but we've kind of had the whole thing of getting the coins together because mm. i thought oh this well we set up for like 30 seasons here like we've got one coin in this season and then one coin in the next season no we do get them all in this one season but surely we're not just going to go through the whole thing again so if it is setting up for a second season what would you do with it we don't know what he's going to do with it but what would you do with it here oh i know exactly oh go ahead We've seen how much chaos and destruction one coin in that small community did. And sure, all right, centralizing all those coins together potentially grants a one massive power, or at least that's what the antagonists believe. Hmm. But now we've got potentially 30 scattered coins out there, each one of them in different locations doing the kind of weird fucked up shit that we saw in that town. That, I'd say, is at least as terrifying as the centralized power, because no one has control of it. You just have all these little pockets of demonic activity or whatever it is. So certainly the corruption of reality and, and weird disappearances and people coming back from the dead and mirrors doing stuff. And yeah, that happening all over the world. If there is a second season, they could set it up a bit like the Lost Room. Mm. That each coin could, if people start tapping into individual coins and trying to work out, well, what can they do on their own rather than as a group? You could have all sorts of weirdness that you could throw out there, like your hair comb that stops time, your key that can open any <laughs> door and go anywhere, that kind of thing. And you could really ramp up the weirdness that way. If I were making it, I'd be a bit like, well, I can kind of see how I could make a monster of the week type thing here with, you know, this this coin gets into New York and this one goes to London and, and crazy stuff happens there and crazy stuff happens there. But they'd, they'd kind of be standalone episodes. I, I struggle to see what I would do with this to kind of bring it all together to create another story arc. That's what I'm sort of intrigued where it might go with that. The classic solution to something like that that I've seen in other TV programs that have attempted to do similar things and sort of rewrite the, not, not rewrite the continuity, but sort of refocus everything after a climactic event like that is basically to introduce another new faction. Mm. So yeah, maybe 
<laughs> After having said how happy I was that it wasn't like this, but maybe there is a group of Satanists that come in that start trying to use this, and you could have some weird antagonism between them and the, the Gnostics. You could have well-meaning people coming in, trying to use some of these things, gather them all together, perhaps for altruistic reasons, and have them go horribly wrong because they are fundamentally fucked up and dangerous. Again, using the Unknown Armies parallel, like a New Inquisition group that come along that just want power. They don't give a shit about religion or faith. They just want power. Mm. Well, what about the church sends a small team of priests to like sort this out, you know, like from Craggy Island? <laughs> Not written by the same guy, though. Who, ironically, is also a Call of Cthulhu fan, but let's gloss over oh, that. Well. <laughs> well, it was certainly an entertaining watch. Not quite what I expected. Yeah, lots of surprises. Some things left me scratching my head. Some things entertained me. Overall, you know, overall, I enjoyed it. It was good. Yeah. I think it's a wildly entertaining program. It's weird. It's chaotic in places. It doesn't always make complete rational sense but it's just so damn much fun i don't care even when it doesn't any show that suddenly has the bloody tongue manifest as a throwaway antagonist that you end up having this massive john wick gun-toting battle against can't be all that bad <laughs> <laughs> But also, if you did enjoy this, I do highly recommend going and seeking out some of uh, Alex de Iglesias' other films. I have put a review of one of them, The Bar, on BlasphemousTomes.com, because I watched it as part of my October horror movie challenge in 2020. And yeah, I think at the very least, seek out The Day of the Beast. That one probably has the most parallels to 30 Coins. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. If you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, we would love it if you let people know. Whether this means leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts from, or putting a post on social media somewhere where interested parties might find it, or even etching it onto a coin and using it to warp the realities of your friends and, well, bring them into the fold. Whatever method you choose, we would be deeply appreciative. Well... Till next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Time to go and polish my coin collection. Hey, enough of that.